Well, welcome everybody to A Coach's Perspective. I'm your host, Jenny Hopkins, and this show is presented to you by Great Southern Bank. Great Southern Bank is serious about convenience with nearly 100 banking centers in six states, hundreds of ATMs, and mobile and online banking services. You're always in touch with your money. Learn more at greatsouthernbank.com, member FDIC. Other sponsors that we'll talk about throughout the show, Highland Dairy, Craig Lehman with Shelter Insurance, Bill Grant Ford in Bolivar, Story Construction, West Logging, Greg and Melinda Burnett, and Springfield Yard Cards. Well, if, if you didn't get to listen to any of the previous shows that we've had, please go to a coachesperspective.com. You can listen to any of them that are archived on the website. Um, you can also go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Verbal, and also on Helium Satellite Radio. So welcome to this episode, and I'm, I'm very excited to, to have our guest today and appreciate him taking the time to be with us. For over 40 years, former Big Ten referee Dan Capron led officiating crews from university to university. Dan has been a mentor and, and staple in the stripes throughout his, the entire country. Officials, players, and even coaches give Dan a lot of credit on his ability to referee a game in front of a passionate group of college football fans. Sometimes that can include around 90,000 people. He is always very passionate about this game. He has worked two Big Ten championship games and numerous bowl games, including the Orange Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Peach Bowl. But the highlight of his career was the national championship game in 2018 between Alabama and Georgia. Went into overtime and what an incredible experience that was. So we loved catching up with him, sharing some stories and getting his insight on some of the different aspects of officiating at the Big Ten level. So enjoy this interview with Dan Capron. All right, so we're here with Dan Capron, and, and you know, we're talking to a, a retired Big Ten referee, and we're going to pick your brain, and I want to welcome you to the show. I'm glad that you are joining us here on A Coach's Perspective. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So a foundational question. What's What was your inspiration for putting on the stripes? Originally? Yes. Money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, I say that it, it, it sounds like it's in jest, but it's really not. I, I mean, it was 1981. I was fresh out of law school. I had just gotten my first job as a lawyer, which at the time paid something like $17,000 a year. Uh, it, it was more then than it is now, but it still wasn't anything that was going to make me get rich and retire. Uh, so I was looking to augment my my salary. Uh, my wife was just getting out of law school. She was pregnant. You know, we were looking to buy a house and and we were just getting started. So uh, I figured that it was a good, easy, relatively easy way to make some extra money on the weekends. And uh, so I uh, sent away to the uh, IHSA, which was the Illinois High School Association, and they sent me the rule book. And this was all, of course, pre-computer and pre-internet and everything else. And I got the rule book and took a 100-question true-false test and mailed it <laughs> in. And I passed the test and I got my stripes. And so I was an official. Oh, look out. <laughs> so that's how it started. Well, great. And you kind of worked your way up and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But when when you first started officiating, I mean, there's a mentality that goes with officiating. Um, there really is. And I, I guess my question is, you know, did you have that mentality? Was it was it an A? Do you or did you have to develop that mentality over time? Definitely the latter. Uh, when I first officiated my very first games, which were at the lowest available level, fifth and sixth graders, seventh and eighth graders. I wasn't even 
experienced enough to work a high school freshman game yet. So that's where I started. And I'm not going to say I made all my mistakes there, but I made a bunch. And I didn't know anything about officiating. I didn't know what an official was. I didn't even know how to get dressed. And I learned. And you know what? Officiating is is not it's not unlike anything else that you're attempting to learn, whether it's to speak a foreign language or how to do welding or how to hit a baseball. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And officiating was no different. So I tried to get as many snaps as I could. And I began to ascend that ladder with no particular goal in mind, other than to just, you know, I suppose at the time, my goal was to be able to work a high school varsity football game. And, uh, <laughs> and I made it. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, I'd say you did. And, and you know, that mentality as you are climbing, um, it seems like it's probably fine tuned. Um, it's, it's, you have to be so focused, you have to tune out all of the noise and be so focused with your mentality. I would say with each level, um, took it took your mentality to a new level as well, not just your skills as an official. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, the, the, the pressures at each level are, are certainly different. I mean, when you're working a high school freshman game versus a, you know, a college game or a division one game or a bowl game, I mean, th- th- those are all different pressures, but they're all pressures, you know, whether it's a parent that's standing there right behind you screaming in your ear or whether it's, you know, untold millions who are watching the game on television, you know, but it's something that you can adapt to. And uh, you you really do have to learn how to adapt to it. If you don't learn how to adapt to it, you're probably not going to last very long in this avocation. <laughs> you're going to stay with fifth and sixth graders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you can even do that. Right. <laughs> you, you have to learn how to keep your cool about you and, yes. and keep a low pulse rate and focus on what your job is and try to blot out all the extraneous uh, matters. And and you, you have to learn how to do that no matter the level that you're working at. Right. So when you started in the Big Ten, uh, I mean, you were a referee. And then when you started in the Big Ten, um, you know, you were a you were in the position you were, um, you know, I think were you a sideline judge? I was a headlinesman. Headlinesman. Um, yeah. And then you worked your way into being a referee, of course, pretty quickly. But what was that transition like? Because before you were a referee and then you had to be part of the crew before you yeah. became a referee again. How was that transition? Well, you said that I did it pretty quickly. It seemed like an eternity to me. <laughs> uh, in actual uh, time frame, it was five years. When I when I came into the Big Ten in 2000, I came in through Division Three football uh, out of the Chicago area. So I never worked in the MAC. I never worked wow. in the Missouri Valley. And the transition from Division Three to the Big Ten was quite a leap. If you also then factor in that when I was a division three official. I had been a referee for several years prior to which I had been a headlinesman at the division three level, but hadn't worked headlinesman in several years. Now, all of a sudden, my boss in the big 10 says, well, nobody comes in as a referee. You have to prove yourself at another position. You have to earn the respect and the admiration of your comrades before we make you a crew chief. And I understand all that. I knew that was the rules of the game. So he put me at headlinesman. And let's just say it was a difficult transition. The speed of the game, all of those pressures that I referred to earlier, all coming to bear at the same time. And, uh, it was a very difficult thing for me to be able to do. 
And, and it took me five years to be able to make that transition from headlinesman back to referee, which is where I felt that I always belonged. Yeah, that's a that's a big jump. That is a big jump. All right. So you get to the Big Ten Conference. What do you think is unique about that conference? What did you enjoy about it the most? Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> you know, I was born and raised in Chicago. And, and you know, this is ground zero for Big Ten land. I mean, if from the time when I was a little boy, you know, I was consciously aware of the Big Ten, which at the time was the original, not original, but the 10 schools without Penn State, without Nebraska, without Rutgers and Maryland, you know. Um, so so that's where I grew up. And, and so for me to be able to ascend to that level of officiating was just beyond my wildest dreams. My biggest concern at the time was whether or not I was going to be able to stay there. And I had a real crisis of confidence, you know, the first few years when I was in the Big Ten, when I wasn't doing well, when I wasn't uh, getting good um, ratings uh, on the objective assessments of my calls and my no calls, my game management, you know, the the way that I handled myself on the field. And it was something that I really struggled with. And at a certain point, and I can be more specific than that, after three years in a row of, of doing just horribly in, in terms of um, my officiating, I had to finally make a decision. And I, and I just, uh, I, I woke up to the fact that I think I was trying too hard and I was officiating scared and I was so afraid of making a mistake. And that the ironic effect of that was that it caused me to make more mistakes. Right. So going into my fourth year, I took the exact opposite approach. I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to get fired. My time in this conference was strictly limited and that for whatever I had left, I didn't care. I was just going to go out and officiate. And if it was right, it was right. If it was wrong, it was wrong. But at the end of the day, I was just going to call it like I saw it and let the chips fall where they may. And that was like lifting a rock off of my shoulders. And from that point forward, almost miraculously and ironically, my grades went went up and and they went up quick enough that the boss thought that maybe there was something wrong with the algorithm or with the graders, <laughs> you know, and he, and he had all this stuff, double check, triple check. No, no, he's, yeah. he's, he's doing it right. All of a sudden it's like a miracle. <laughs> and um, so I did the, the fourth and fifth year at headlinesman did very, very well. And then they made me a referee. Well, so, that, that I appreciate you sharing that because there are times, you know, with coaches, with athletes, with officials, um, where they have transitional times where they do struggle and and you kind of persevered, persevered through that. But the key was you made a mentality change. And and I, I love that story. Um, that's right. impactful. Yeah. Good yeah. job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take our first break. Um, and when we come back, we'll continue um, speaking with Dan Capron. And I want to appreciate uh, Great Southern Bank for being our presenting sponsor. We'll be right back here on A Coach's Perspective. This segment is sponsored by Highland Dairy. Welcome back to A Coach's Perspective. You know, Highland Dairy is owned by dairy farmers. They've been providing a great selection of nutritious dairy products since 1938. It's a proven fact from scientific studies and professional dietitians that the ideal sports beverage recovery drink available to athletes after a workout is chocolate milk. And Highland Dairy has the best tasting chocolate. And they're a proud sponsor of A Coach's Perspective. Let's continue our conversation with Dan Capron. 
Well, welcome back. We're joined by Dan Capron, um, retired Big Ten official. Now that you're retired, uh, let me, you know, you could speak a little more freely. I won't put you on the spot for a lot of things, but um, you don't have to mention any names. But as an official, I always think it's kind of interesting to talk about what your pet peeves are. You know, as a former coach myself, um, you know, I always felt like I had a good relationship with officials, but there's a certain way that I tried to address them and, and talk with them. But then there were also, I had pet peeves uh, for officials and players. Do you have any pet peeves from players or, or coaches? Um, you know, I, 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 I can't say that I do. Um, I, 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 I guess the way I can answer that comes the closest to the question that you're asking me is that when I came into the big 10, there were some giants of among the coaching ranks. Uh, and when I say giants, these are men that were both chronologically old enough to be my father, as well as revered enough in their own university towns and beyond and known nationally. People like Joe Paterno at Penn State, John Cooper at Ohio State, Joe Tiller at Purdue, uh, Ron Turner at Illinois, uh, Randy Walker at Northwestern. Glenn Mason at Minnesota, Lloyd Carr at Michigan. I mean, it was it was a very difficult environment for a young kid to come into. And these coaches can smell blood in the water. OK, they can smell weakness. They can perceive it. And if they think that they can gain an advantage and I'm speaking collectively here about every single one of them, they're going to get they're going to do whatever it takes to get an advantage. That made my environment all the more challenging. Now, fast forward in time, I get a little gray hair. They, be, you know, I move over to referee. Now, now I'm in a much more comfortable position. I'm starting to get my confidence going. You know, the rubber's hitting the pavement a little better. And now the coaching ranks are starting to change. And the coaching ranks are getting younger and they're getting more inexperienced. Well, by the time you get up to my last season in 2019, I was literally older than every coach in the Big Ten and more experienced than every coach in the Big Ten, but one, Kirk Ferentz. He's the only one that, that was there when I arrived. And Kirk and I are about the same age. Um, and it was a complete sea change. So that's not really a pet peeve, but it just really affected the dynamics of the relationship between myself and the coaches. When I came in, I was in a much weaker, inferior, I was relegated to being you know, in the role of a rookie. By the time I left, I wouldn't say I was an elder statesman, but let's just say the coaches understood who was in charge of that relationship. Right. <laughs> there you go. And and what advice, like if, if you had you know, coaches that want to communicate effectively with officials, with um, all the emotion that goes into games and contests and everything going on, what's what do you appreciate about communication with coaches? When That's they... an excellent question. And I can give you a real good anecdote that I've used uh, across um, different state lines with all different coaches. Whenever I would go over um, after, a, you know, usually during a timeout, I mean, we're not going to stop the game to go talk to a coach, but when there's a natural break, like a TV timeout, if a coach wants to talk to me, I'll always go over and talk to the coach. Almost uniformly, the coach doesn't want to talk to me to say, hey, great job. The coach <laughs> wants to talk to me because he is irate about something that just happened. And he either wants to know why, or more frequently, he wants to tell me what really happened and why everything was wrong. Now, all that's fair game, but almost in every instance, when I get to the sideline, the coach is screaming, he's shouting, he's yelling. And the first words out of my mouth 
as I'm standing there before him are, coach, 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 I can hear you. There's no reason to shout. Tell me what the problem is and I'll try to address it. And in every instance, without exception, the temperature comes down. The coach, you can almost see him deflate when he realizes, hey, wait a minute, he's right. There's no reason for me to scream at this guy. He's standing three feet in front of me. I can just explain to him and he's indicated a willingness to listen to what I have to say. And it just changes the whole tenor of the conversation. I think that is great advice. I think that's wonderful advice because it is you you put the walls down immediately when you kind of validate a little bit about, okay, I understand your position by your tone and by the way that you respond to that. Mm -hmm. um, there's that mentality coming in again, for sure. All right, Most so of the time, and, and I can tell you this, not only because it's preached by our boss, but because I've I've seen it firsthand, the things that an official will get in trouble for aren't so much the calls or the no calls from the live ball action that happens during the game. It's the way in which he or she communicates or doesn't communicate with the coach. Okay. Right. If you are a poor communicator, you're going to have a short career right. because the one thing that the coaches have a right to expect. And the one thing that the boss demands of us is that ability to communicate with the coaches. Now the coach isn't always going to like what we have to say. Right. Most of the time he may not. But at least if we communicate what happened and why we did what we did, okay, including the fact that we might have made a mistake, mm -hmm. in the long run, they appreciate that more than poor communication or, God forbid, no communication at all. Right. I agree. That's excellent advice. All right. So as, an, as a referee, you know, the chemistry of a crew, um, it's really important. And, you know, your crew is your team on the field and there's a lot of preparation that goes into a game. I mean, including studying film and professional development, you do scenario training. As a leader of that crew, um, how do you ensure that everyone knows their role, um, understands the mission of the crew and, and maintains that positive chemistry? Ultimately, that's my job to make sure that those are all conveyed. And it begins at the clinic uh, in the summertime, which takes place in July, where we would all be together at the same place at the same time for the first time. Because crews change year to year, not massively, not radically, at least not, not often. But you might lose one guy or two and pick up one person or two from year to year. Not once in my 15 years as a crew chief did I have an identical crew two years in a row. OK, Not so right. you're always starting with a fresh slate because you've always got new people on the crew. We have different roles that we have to fill and you start with that education at the time of the clinic. OK, and then it's something that you build on from week to week. Ideally, you're going to be a much better crew in week 12 of the season than you are in week one of the season. I always tell my crew, look, all mistakes aren't don't count the same in terms of your ultimate future in the Big Ten or in terms of whether or not you get a ball game or a postseason assignment. If you make a critical mistake in week 12, it's going to count a lot worse than a critical mistake in week one. You know, it's something that, you know, that can be forgiven. That can be learned from. OK, but if you're still making critical mistakes in the back part of the season, eh, that's probably going to hurt you. Right. Okay. And then the well, other thing that I tell my crew is is our our role there. Look, we're not that we're not there to call fouls. That's not our that's not what we want to be doing. We want to manage the game. We want to make sure that the game is played without incident, 
without embarrassment to the conference or to our boss or to ourselves. And yeah, okay, we're going to miss stuff. We're going to have 50-50 calls, what my boss calls 50-50 calls mm-hmm. on a pass interference. Pass interference. Okay. <laughs> Was it pass interference? Wasn't it pass interference? You get those calls that could be 50-50, you could defend them either way. That's not what the boss is worried about. What the boss is worried about are the things that he can't defend. Did we give a team a fifth down? Did we allow a team to snap the ball and run a play with 13 people on the field instead of 11? Did we allow the offense to snap the ball with zeros on the clock after the quarter ended or with zeros on the play clock after it expired? And now all of a sudden they throw a touchdown pass. Those are the things that cannot be defended by our boss. That's not a 50-50 call. That's going brain dead and embarrassing yourself on the field. So my mantra to my crew, starting at the beginning at the clinic and going all season long is, look, the calls will take care of themselves. You know how to do this. You've done it before. Don't worry about it. Don't obsess about it. What we want to do is manage the game and make sure that we're paying attention to those little things that officials who who are working fifth and sixth grade ball know how to do. Okay. Because if you miss one of those, your career is probably over. Well, you have, you are, you're the standard that a lot of officials are looking at. I mean, they're studying you and and that's something that, that is, is great advice for them. So through this mentoring process, you know, it's a long season, Um, you know, as, as you're working with your crew, do you find yourself also trying to, to give pep talks or, or motivate your crew and to keep them fresh and to keep them focused so that they, you know, you want to be in a little bit of a, a routine, um, but keeping them, re, you know, refreshed. Did you find yourself doing that some throughout the season? Yes. And I can tell you right now that the most critical, mo- the most important, the most indispensable ingredient to building that crew towards a successful finish is laughter. <laughs> laughter is the indispensable ingredient. If you can get your crew laughing during a pregame on a Friday night when we're getting ready for the game the next day, maybe we point out some foibles on film. Maybe the umpire got run into and got knocked down on his butt or something like right. that. Or maybe the side judge is looking one way when the play went the other way. If we can get each other laughing and yet still learning from those examples, right. that's what I want in a crew. That's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to have the ability to laugh at yourself and to be able to, to that's how you grow and that's how you learn. And some people have more material than others. <laughs> and if the last thing that happens when the crew gathers at the midfield mark, right after the coin toss and right before the opening kickoff, when television is pointing to us and saying, okay, we're on the air, we can go. And we all put our hands in and I'll say something. And my goal is to say something that's going to get those other seven guys to laugh. Because if you laugh right before the kickoff, what does that do? It means you takes your nervousness down. Everybody's got nerve. I've got nervousness. We've all got the jitters right before kickoff. You want to get rid of those. You want to be you want to be jitter free. You want to be able to look at that objectively, clinically, officiate the game. You know what you're doing. And if you're laughing, you're relaxed. And if you're relaxed, you're going to officiate a better game. Excellent technique. I think that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. All right. Well, we're, we're going to take our final break and we will come back and continue with Dan Capron. Thank you to Highland Dairy for sponsoring this segment, along with Greg and Melinda Burnett, as they support local and thoughtful radio. We'll be right back here on A Coach's Perspective. Welcome back to A Coach's Perspective. This segment is sponsored by Bill Grant Ford in Bolivar. 
Bill Grant Ford, they know cars, they know trucks, they know SUVs, and they know service, and they know how to keep their customers happy and loyal. I've been one of them for over 25 years. You've got to give Kelly Grant and Shane Rainey a call. They'll take care of you. They'll take the stress out of buying a vehicle away and do a coast-to-coast search and find exactly what you're looking for. 417-326-7671. Thanks also to Westlogging. Go to westlogging.com. Contact Danny West for a free consultation. He's going to treat your land like his own. And we also thank Craig Lehman with Shelter Insurance. Let's get back to our conversation with Dan Capron. We're back with Dan Capron. And, you know, rumor has it, rumor has it. I I got a couple of stories I'd like for you to um, either defend or or tell us about. But rumor has it, um, I have to protect my source, you know, but one of your colleagues did say that you went rogue one time on the shoe apparel for a game. Yes. Yes. You want to talk about that? You want to explain that? Well, it wasn't for a game. It was for... (laughs) <laughs> it was for several seasons. Um, seasons. Yeah, several seasons. Um, we we uh, had a uh, contract. I think it was that year because it, it moves around. But but we had a contract at that time with um, Under Armour, and they would supply us with our shoes, and um, the shoes that we were provided. Uh, it, it, it for some reason or another just wasn't comfortable. And I remember complaining about it in the locker room about game three, week three of the season. And my line judge, who is now in the NFL, um, a guy from Indiana, he says, oh, he says, here's what you do. And he wrote down the actual Under Armour number, catalog number. You just go online, you know, underarmor.com and, you know, you here's the number and tell them your size and they'll ship you. And I'm looking at his shoes and he's got these shoes that look so comfortable. They look great. So the shoes come, I do it. The shoes come in the mail, you know, by the time of the next week and I open up the box and the shoes are gray and they're not black. And I'm like, well, the hell with it. I'll just, you know, that's close enough. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> I thought it was close enough, but right. I'm colorblind. So it was, it was difficult. So I, I, I put the shoes on and, uh, you know, I started working in these shoes and it was pretty much not even noted or commented upon until one week, uh, Mike Pereira, who does like a rules-based uh, podcast type thing or some kind of a show, uh, with involving college football, he does. He 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 has my game that I was working that week. I don't even remember where it was. And the first thing that he does is he draws attention to my shoes, and he makes it a whole big thing. Now, where are Mister Capron's shoes? Are they, did somebody steal his shoes? Did somebody <laughs> you know? Did, did he do this on purpose? Why is he wearing these shoes? <laughs> well, coming out of that one, you've got two choices. You can either be embarrassed and revert back to where you came from, or you can say, "Oh, does this." bother you well then i'm gonna keep doing it and that's what i chose to do. <laughs> so from then until the end of my career my crew called them the gray ghosts and i no would worries. wear the gray shoes and i was proud of it and yeah. you know it didn't hurt anybody so yeah that's, that's <laughs> the rebel referee yes. <laughs> i love it i love it <laughs> um well okay so i i guess i won't protect my source any longer because he you know <laughs> is a local favorite around here but ron snodgrass another big 10 um, colleague, you know, when I, I asked him, I said, I've, I've, I'm going to interview Dan Capron. What can you tell me about him? How would you describe him? And so he he described you as very articulate, um, very witty, outspoken, very professional. Um, and that he said, you know, if, uh, officiating is a tough gig, but you always seem to have fun with it. 
So tell people out there, like sometimes they're going to do things in their job that are difficult, that are hard. How do you keep the fun yourself? I know that you said you gave your crew this humor, but how do you do that for yourself to make sure that you're having a good time no matter what situation? You know, Jenny, it all goes back to what I spoke of earlier at the end of that third season when I just made a decision that I'm not going to officiate that way anymore. I'm not going to officiate scared. I'm not going to be worried about grades. I'm not going to be worried about whether the flag I just threw is correct or incorrect. I know what a football play should look like. And if something jumps out at me that looks like a foul, then I'm going to call it. And if it looks like it's borderline, I'm not going to stop the game over that. And if I'm right, I'm right. Great. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But it just all goes back to that attitude of just, you know, I hate to to, to utter the words not caring because, of course, we all care about our work product. We all want to be perfect on the field. But it's just more of an attitude of, you know, look this is how I'm going to call this game. And I don't care how other people react to that. And the ironic effect of that was, is that it made me even more popular in my boss's eyes. And by the way, I also, it it should be noted that there was a change of boss there at a certain point. The original boss who hired me, a guy by the name of David Perry, was uh, quite a tough taskmaster. And I would say that he was the master of negative reinforcement. If he had a choice between the carrot and the stick, he would not hesitate and he would reach for the stick every single time. My current boss, and the he came in when I was at about year nine or 10 in the Big Ten. So I was already a referee. Bill Carollo, best boss I've ever worked for, without exception, in any walk of life. Law, when I had jobs as a kid, Bill Carollo, he praises publicly, he chastises privately. And if he can somehow pick the carrot instead of the stick, he's going to do it every single time. And as a result of that, you're not afraid of what he might think. Your attitude is is one of wanting to walk over hot coals for the guy because you don't want to disappoint him. And that's kind of how I've done it. What what a great attribute. What a great compliment for your superior, because that is, to me, that's one of the secrets. And I'm sure that you learned some of those leadership skills and, and implemented them within your own crew. Without, yes, without question. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that is wonderful. Well, y- you are an attorney. Um, tell I me am. about, tell me about your, your law career. How has that helped you in refereeing? Because I can see some parallels, uh, you know, you're enforcing <laughs> the law, you're enforcing Conflict. rules. You're... <laughs> yeah. Use of words. Right. Um, I bet yeah, they well, have complimented each other. I think that, you know, yes. refereeing probably helped you in your law career and law career in refereeing. Yes, I, yes, I, I would agree with that. Uh, and and in the interest of full disclosure, I'm also a retired attorney at this point. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've given that up. So, uh, you know, I want to be accurate there. But uh, in the obvious ways, you know, being an attorney, be the ability to read a statute, the ability to understand the difference between a trial court and an appellate court when we're on the field and we're talking about the original call versus instant replay. I mean, it, 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 it is very complimentary. The ability to come out as a referee and to make an announcement on television that, you know, you don't sound like Porky Pig and everybody can understand what you're saying. Very complimentary. I will, however, say this, uh, you know, people who have commented upon the parallelism between refereeing and law, I've, I've always, I've liked to give them this anecdote. You know, currently in the state of Illinois, which is where I've lived and always lived, there are approximately 100,000 licensed attorneys. When I joined the Big Ten staff, there were 49 Big Ten officials. Currently, it's probably something on the order of about 70 or 75. 
which do you think that I'm prouder of? <laughs> to be one of 100,000 or to be one of between 50 and 75? That's an easy 50-50. So oh. and, and, and I'll tell you what, I'll give you, I'll give you one other thought. When I would, would uh, be with my crew on football weekends, nobody's asking me about law. Nobody's asking me about being a lawyer. But I'll tell you what, for, for, for those days when I'm practicing law and when I'm in the courtroom, all they want to talk about, judges, other lawyers, all they want to talk about is Big Ten football <laughs> and my career as an official. They are fascinated by it. Right. And so there, it, it, it's not, you know, <laughs> I do both. I did one because it was my profession and it was my livelihood. I did the other one because I loved it with a passion. Right. That's a perfect answer. Wonderful. Well, I also know an area that's very important to you, and that's your family. Um, family is very important to you. Um, that's very evident. Um, talk to me a little bit about how your family handled being in the stands. Um, let's say fans sometimes don't agree with the officials' call. Uh, you know, it, and sometimes that can they can be a little bit rowdy with how they express that. How did your family in the stands handle um, sometimes when when there was be less desired behavior around them? Uh, I have a wife and four daughters. Uh, all of the daughters are um, married with children, etc. Although they weren't at the time. At the time when I I went into the Big Ten, I, my oldest daughter also went into the Big Ten. She uh, uh, was accepted at the University of Illinois, where uh, wow. she was a student. And then ultimately, all four of my girls graduated from the University of Illinois and went on, you know, with their professional degrees and 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 graduate school and everything else. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a work in progress after that. Um, after I became a referee, my wife, uh, who is a saint, uh, decided, uh, that, and I, I, at my invitation, she would come to all of my games. And when I say all of my games, if I had 12 games in a season, she'd probably be at 11 of them. Wow. Ironically, the one game that she would usually not go to would be Northwestern, <laughs> which is, you know, the, the closest geographically, because it was just, I live on the South side and it's a hassle to drive to the North side. And it was anyway, anyway, <laughs> but she'd go to Penn state. She'd go to Rutgers. She'd go to Nebraska. She's been to every single big 10 stadium. And the first thing that I can tell you is that she would never wear any apparel that was identifiable either by the name on the front or by color of either of the teams that were uh, playing that day. The officials are all entitled to a series of tickets as part of our compensation package, but everybody in the stadium knows where the official seats are, or at least the season ticket holders all do. So, you know, when you're sitting there, they, they know the people sitting around you all know that you're with the officials. They don't know if you're a wife or a girlfriend or a daughter, but they know you're with the officials. And my wife, who's also an attorney, was all, always cognizant of that. I can tell one quick story that I get a kick out of. She gets less of a kick out of it. I had a game at Michigan uh, one time and um, she brought a rain jacket. Uh, with her because the weather was supposed to be somewhat inclement. Well, the rain jacket that she bought brought with her that day was a rain jacket that she had purchased previously when I had a game at Michigan State and the weather changed unexpectedly. So she had to go out and buy a rain jacket. Well, she buys a green and white Michigan State rain jacket. That's the rain jacket that she's got. And I think Michigan was playing Penn State or something like that. 
And she puts on the rain jacket and I look at her. I said, you're going to wear that, are you? She says, why? She says, Michigan State's not playing today. This is Michigan against Penn State. I said, I wouldn't wear that if I were you. She <laughs> says, oh, you're just being overzealous and you know you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I hook up with her after the game. She's, you're not going to believe what those fans did to me. <laughs> Apparently, the Michigan fans that were sitting behind her were eating peanuts and putting the shells in her hood oh. and making comments about Spartan this and Spartan that and Sparty, take that Sparty and take that Sparty. So she got a little lesson in Big Ten rivalry. Right. <laughs> I always like to tell, but but generally speaking, she maintains great anonymity when she's sitting in those official seats. And I would say she shopped for a very neutral raincoat and never forgot it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Okay. So I, I want to get your, I'm going to get your thoughts on some things. So I'm going to bring up some kind of random topics and just give me your thoughts on those. Um, the first one is um, we've had Dean Blandino on this show a few times talking replay. Uh, what are your thoughts on replay? You think the hell? I love replay. <laughs> replay extended my career. <laughs> <laughs> when I, Seriously, when I came into the Big Ten and when I was struggling during those, during those early years, that was pre-replay. So if you make a game deciding mistake, you're not just a jerk for the next two minutes. You're a jerk forever. Okay. Oh. <laughs> and, and and I had a number of, you know, time, I like to say that I'm the one that probably caused replay to come into existence. I was making so many mistakes. <laughs> and then when replay finally came in, I think the first 10 shutdowns that I was involved in plays that got shut down, I was 0 for 10. I literally could have flipped a coin and had a better result than my calls on the field. But right. then I got better. And and But I can tell you in all seriousness, and I think I speak for my colleagues, we love replay. We absolutely love it. Be, oh, well, aren't you afraid of being shown to be wrong? Look, if you're wrong, you're wrong. And right. again, you want to be wrong for two minutes or forever. And if we make a mistake, we want to get it fixed. We want that call to be right. Because you know what? Once it's fixed, it's fixed. And then nobody's thinking about it. Nobody's talking about it. It's been fixed. Now we're, now they're thinking about the play, the next play. So I love replay. Okay. <laughs> very good. Very good. Okay. Your next thoughts um, on, on rules. And I have a specific question, obviously, for that. Um, if at, Knowing all of the rules and the changes that you've seen over your the extensive career that you have had um is there any rule that you wish they would change um that they haven't yet um no I, and I, I wish I could give you a more <laughs> spectacular answer that would awe everybody but I really can't the, the the biggest change that came in during my tenure was the targeting rule uh and I thought that was a phenomenally good addition to the rules uh to be able especially given the number of head injuries and the seriousness of those head injuries it had to happen or the game was going to go away. And um, and uh, I think that's been a terrific change to the rule book. But in terms of what I would do now, uh, now, I mean, the, the, you know, the game's in pretty good shape. Uh, you know, it, 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 I think sometimes the games get a little long. You know, when I was in my last year, they'd go 320, 325, 330 routinely. And I think they really need to be down closer to that three hour mark. Uh, they've made a change coming in this year to try to address that. The clock will no longer stop on first downs unless we're in the final two minutes of the half. Mm -hmm. So that, that that should make somewhat of a difference. You know, if you really wanted to attack it, you'd get rid of all the TV commercials. But, oh, my God, they'd burn me at the stake if I ever said that publicly. So right. let's keep that just between us. Yeah, don't, okay. don't tell anybody, all right? <laughs> right. <laughs> 
All right. So how about um, your thoughts on embarrassing moments? Have you, you know, you have to turn on a microphone and address, you oh, know, sure. the crowd. have you have any embarrassing moments where maybe you might've forgot to turn off your microphone? Oh, I, I could give you my best one. My best one was uh, down in, at the university of Miami in Florida and they were playing Nebraska, a game that ended up going into overtime. It was the afternoon game. So it kicked off at 3.30 p.m. locally with 2.30 on our body clocks as Midwesterners. And the temperature at kickoff on the field was, this was an early September game. It had to be a thousand degrees out with high humidity, a million percent humidity. We're walking the field before the game and I turned to one of the security people and I was shouting at him. I said, how do you people live down here? This is uninhabitable. And he started laughing. You know, here's the Chicago kid coming down, complaining about the heat. So we worked this game and I probably lost 12 pounds of water during the game because it was so hot. All right. We get late in the fourth quarter and Nebraska calls a timeout. And at the time, I was thinking about how, wow, you know, th this these, these team colors, they look very familiar. I go on the microphone and I say, charge timeout, Wisconsin. They're second. And turn the microphone off. And all of a sudden, everybody in the stadium, the, the crowd starts laughing which is something you don't often hear. And my umpire runs up to me and he says, why did you say that? I said, why did you say what? He says, why did you say timeout Wisconsin? I said, I did not. <laughs> so the heat was so bad that by the end of the fourth quarter, I was borderline delirious right. and I called Nebraska, Wisconsin. I had to go over to the Nebraska sideline and apologize for it. They thought it was funny too. Right. <laughs> hard to maintain your credibility when you don't know the name of the team that's playing there. Right. Before. So. <laughs> I'd say that was probably my most embarrassing moment. Well, and that happens. That happens. And that's good that they were good natured about it. Yeah, it really doesn't happen. So that's why okay. it was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was trying to make you feel better about it. <laughs> well, have you have you ever left your mic on and said anything that's like um it, you know that that you've had to come back and and Yeah, th there have been officials know. who have dropped F bonds. Uh mostly that's happened in the MAC, not at the Big 10 level. Oh. <laughs> uh but but I did have one uh, again this also involved Nebraska. I was in Lincoln and I don't know why this happened to this day. It's a mystery, but I announced a penalty. I neglected to turn off my microphone and I blew the ball ready for play. Well, if you've ever heard the oh. sound of a whistle being blown into an open mic, if you're in that stadium, that is a very unpleasant sound. So, you know, okay, everybody kind of chuckles. Yeah, the ref's an idiot. I turn off my microphone. <laughs> Fast forward the next foul that takes place. I step out, I make the announcement. And I'll be damned. I do the same thing again. And I blow the whistle and the microphone is on. And uh, my crew is looking at me like, what is the matter with you? <laughs> it happened three times. By the third time, my crew comes running in and they said, are you having a stroke? Are you having a medical emergency? What is the matter with you? you idiot? And the, by now the crowd is booing because they're convinced that I'm doing it on purpose. <laughs> I've never done it since. I had never done it up until that time. And it happened three times in a row on the same game. So <laughs> I don't know what ha what caused it, but yeah, that happened. <laughs> so. Well, you learned from your mistake. It sounds I, like I, after I, three I, times, yeah. usually it's three times to learn something, right? And that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, turn your mic off. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, good. So, okay, thoughts on um, coaches. I want to ask this question when it has to do with coaches. Um, 
you know, you've talked with um, how you communicate with coaches and you effectively communicate with them, but, you know, you've called the overtime national championship game with Alabama and Georgia. I mean, this is an intense game and, um, you know, coaches, I'm going to have to say, I mean, I was one of them, they, they're wound pretty tight. <laughs> they're wound pretty tight. How, how do you um, kind of get them a little bit off guard before game, you know, maybe not in the emotional times, but how can you kind of get them to, to relax and, and enjoy the moment and let's, uh, let's do this together. Before the national championship game, well, not just before that game, but before any game, one of the duties of the referee and the umpire is to go to both locker rooms 90 minutes before kickoff and to meet with both head coaches and to go over a number of administrative details, you know, TV related and whether everybody's legally equipped and, you know, the time of kickoff and everything else. And usually that's an opportunity for them to, you know, say, okay, uh, we've watched film on this other team and they're going to do this to us and they're going to do that to us. Or maybe they have a trick play that they're going to run and they don't want us to be caught by surprise. So they'll tell us the trick play. So there's a number of reasons why we do that. So I go to the locker rooms before the national championship. And of course, Nick Saban has been there you know, a million times. So he's as calm as can be, you know, it's just another, just another Monday night for him. <laughs> uh, and then I go to the Georgia locker room and Kirby smarts a little more on edge. And I'm thinking, gee whiz, he's got to calm down a little bit. You know, we're 90 minutes before kickoff. So we go through all the details and I, and uh, I said, Hey coach, just one more thing. I said, you know, I said, I would have to figure this was at the end of his second year at Georgia. Okay. I said, I would have to figure that the University of Georgia has to be awfully delighted that they hired you as their football coach. And I'll never forget. He looks at me and he says, yeah, for now. <laughs> and you know what? In those two words, there is a great deal of truth when it comes to the coaching ranks, because, you know, and we've just seen it with Pat Fitzgerald. Who, who has been, you know, Mr. Northwestern and for years was iconically the head coach at Northwestern University. And without getting into the specifics of that case, now he's gone just in the in the in the blink of an eye. So it, it can happen. This is serious business. Uh, this is their livelihood. It wasn't my livelihood, but it was their livelihood. And I was always respectful of that. I think that's nice. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, you know, and, and it is nice, uh, you know, for you to be able to recognize that and validate that and um, and be able to to communicate with them and put them at ease um, and talk to them like a human. You know, you both have your roles and your jobs to do, but having that human talk before the game was probably one of your favorite parts. Yes. Yeah. And some of them are better at it than others, but I won't go into the specifics on that because I still kind of work for the Big Ten office every week. I'm in the uh, command center okay. in uh, Rosemont, so I'm I'm going to be uh, a little bit circumspect on that. I, I don't know if you're looking at my script or not, but my next question was, tell me about working in the command center and how do you like that? <laughs> oh, I love working in the command center. It's like, I call it the the the, the world's greatest sports bar without the beer. Uh, <laughs> we uh, the, For those who don't know, the command center is in the Big Ten office, which is its own building in Rosemont, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago. And it's an entire room uh, about the size of maybe be a high school, a big high school classroom, or maybe a, a smaller college lecture hall. And at the front of the room are um, a number of very large television sets with an enormous television set in the middle. And the role of the command center is to monitor games in real time 
for the pur- not for the purposes of who's winning and losing, but for the purposes of the officiating. Okay. And that's done on a number of levels, not just to grade the officials and, you know, see who's doing well and who's not doing well, uh, but also to see if there's anything controversial, anything that the boss and the boss, Bill Carollo is there every, every week from start to finish, whether he needs to, you know, know about uh, so that he can see it so that when his cell phone rings and it's some reporter from ESPN on the phone, he's not caught by surprise. Okay. Uh, And so he can be apprised of what's going on replay wise, what's going on targeting wise. Those are the plays that are typically looked at. Now in the command center, Bill Carollo, he's got an entire staff of technical people who are the people who understand how to make the videos work and back it up and go with the sound from this TV to that TV, all the things that are more engineering based and beyond my comprehension. But then he's also got some retired uh, people as well. Not only myself, Jerry Markbright, Big Ten alum, NFL alum, worked four Super Bowls, maybe the greatest official to ever put on a striped shirt. Ron Gunther himself, not only a former coach, but also the former athletic director at Illinois and played at Illinois. So he's got an incredible Big Ten pedigree. And myself, we're the three that are there every week. And then there's a rotation of people that come through week to week based upon their schedules. These are active officials. And if they live local, close enough to the command center, as well as if they have a week off that week, Bill might bring them in and have them assist as well so that they can kind of see the operation and have a better understanding of it at, at, at the nucleus. It's like a who's who list of, of yeah it's 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 sure terrific it, it's it's an amazing uh an, an amazingly well run operation and i'm just so proud to be a part of it right. add dan capron to that list um well let's go back to one of those names that you just mentioned jerry mark Wright. um you recently you know you've been retired for a bit since 2019 um but you were recently recognized for the jerry mark bright award how did that feel to receive accolades from your peers? Because I, I know officials, you know, you're there to do a job and you're going to, you're going to officiate and you're going to do the best that you can. It's not about accolades. It's not about awards. Um, but this one had to be pretty special to you. Tell me about getting that. Award. Well, it resonated and it's not easy to catch me by surprise because I always prided myself on my preparation. That also dovetails in well with my career as a lawyer, you know, preparation, preparation, and then you 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 do your job and you're better equipped to do your job. So I was at the clinic, which took place a couple of weeks ago, and unbeknownst to me, I was going to be given this award. I was given the award. It completely knocked my socks off. I didn't see it coming. And I was just flabbergasted by it. I feel so unworthy to be holding an award with Jerry Mark Bright's name on it. He is legendary. He worked the game of the century in 1965 between Michigan State and Notre Dame when they were both number one and number two in the nation. And they played to a 10 to 10 tie. He was on that game. Uh, He went into the National Football League in 1976. And to this day, nobody has refereed four Super Bowls. He has done it. He's just amazing. He is so humble that to talk to the guy, you would never know it. But he has helped countless officials in their careers with advice and counsel. Uh, He's the quintessential officials official and he's in his 80s now so you know i i don't think i'm telling tales out of school to say that he's lost a step certainly physically walks with a cane but he's jerry Markbright, and in anybody's mount rushmore of officials he gets that george washington spot and you get an award with his name on it yes it's just unbelievable i i just feel very unworthy to be holding that award but i'm humbled by it 
Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, I, I know that, um, you, you know, you're in the command center and you're still kind of got your hand in it. You probably do a lot of mentoring and consulting, but what, what, what do you miss about putting on the stripes um, for those big games in front of 90,000 fans? I miss my crews. I mean, that that's really when you get down to it, it's just the eight of us, 10. And if you count the replay guys, and I do count the replay guys, they're a part of our crew just as much as anybody else. So there's 10 of us. And there's only 10 people in that stadium that don't care who wins. 10. That's it. That don't care who wins. And it's our job to manage that game. The, the pressure is so enormous that when you get done with the game and when you get back in the locker room, you can breathe that sigh of relief. You can laugh at that bollocked up play, that crazy thing that happened. And the camaraderie that develops between the men and women, and now there are women on the cruise, is indescribable. Uh, I, I mean, I, I made my living with words, but it, it's difficult to describe something like that relationship. Uh, the crew becomes greater than the sum of the parts. And I, I tell you, I go into battle with those guys anytime. And that's what I miss the most. That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, I, I appreciate uh, so much what you've done throughout your career and the passion and the love that you have for officiating. Um, it's inspiring. It is inspiring. And I'm glad that you've been recognized for it. And I appreciate uh, you helping younger officials. And um, I know that uh, you've left a, a big impact on this profession. So thank you for that. Can I also just say that when, when with my retirement, soon after my retirement, um, John O'Neill uh, retired, actually went, went to the grading department of the NFL. Mike Cannon, who was a classmate of mine, we came in together in 2000. He just retired. He was another referee. What does this mean? This means that your own Ron Snodgrass, this is his time now. Okay. When, 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 I, when the three of us, Cannon, Capron and O'Neill were still working, Ron was considered part of that middle management group of the referees because there are, you know, eight crews uh, in the big 10. Now, I guess they're going to go to nine with the advent of USC and UCLA. But for, for a long this time, there were eight crews. This is Ron's time. And, and, and Ron Snodgrass of Springfield, Missouri is going to be at or near the apex of that pyramid of Big Ten referees, and it's going to be his leadership. And I've seen it. He's been with me as an, uh, as a, uh, uh, the, uh, an extra, the uh, auxiliary official that we, that we have on games. I've seen Ron up close. I've seen his work. He's spectacular. I would never tell him that to his face. So please <laughs> just keep this between us, but he's a phenomenally talented official. Not sure I'm fond of that Southern accent of his, but you know, other than that, <laughs> he on has the things, an accent. <laughs> yeah, on the things that he can control, he's magnificent. And I'm so proud of him. And I'm so happy to be seeing this new age of Big Ten officiating with him in the leadership position. Oh, that's wonderful. What a nice compliment. I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I know that he will appreciate that too, because I know he looks up to you and, and has a lot of respect for you as an official. Um, and, you know, I, I really appreciate your time. I think that this has been wonderful. Um, I'd love to have you back on sometime. I know fall is a busy time, but I would love to pick your brain and continue to tell stories and, and share your perspective from your, your officiating shoes, your gray officiating shoes. <laughs> hey, I'm retired. I can come anytime. You just let me know. I'll be there. <laughs> that is awesome. That is great. That is great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Dan, you, Jenny, this was wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's great. All right. Well, we're going to move into our post-game talk. My thanks to Dan Capron for, for joining us. 
And we're going to move into our post-game talk, sponsored by Story Construction. Go to story, S-T-O-R-E-E dot com for more information. And don't forget, you can always go to a acoachesperspective.com for show lineups, previous show information, and anything that um, has to do with the show. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter. All the information is right there at the tip of your fingers. Now for our post-game talk. The stripes, the yellow flag, the whistle, the microphone, the white hat. All of these represent tools that a referee will need with them on game day. But there is another toolbox that has to be also brought into the stadium. Focused eyes, an active ear, a quick mind, an open demeanor, a knowledgeable brain, a caring heart, and an attitude of love for the game and the ones that play it. Those tools are non-negotiable when it comes to being a success. What tools do you need in your life to be a success? Do you have some of these skills and more? Pack your toolbox every day and be ready for the decisions and the actions that you have to take on. And may we all have the courage to use our strength, take adventure, seek serenity, and embrace wisdom along our path. Because that's how champions do it. And I'm going to remind you as I do each and every week, be a good human, live your life like a champion, live like a human champion. This is Jenny Hopkins, and this has been A Coach's Perspective.